Good to be with you all. Always fun to have these joint services together. Uh, congratulations, Grace Fellowship Church. You made it in the morning. I'm telling you guys, one day we're going to have to do this joint services at 3 o'clock. And you'll see the joy of sleeping in a little bit on a Sunday morning and still getting to church. So uh, if you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament. I'd say probably in the, the back eighth of your Bible. Um, you're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and today we're beginning a three-week series in this chapter. Uh, this is one of the most famous chapters in the New Testament, and for good reason. Uh, you've likely heard it read at weddings over the years, maybe even this summer, which is more than appropriate, though it actually speaks to love in Christ's church more than in marriage. But it describes the nature of Christian love with such beauty and simplicity and profundity that even those who would distance themselves from Christianity or those who know very little about the Bible still find in these words something that's deep and enduring, some real lasting wisdom here which means that we're not going to be short on material to meditate on in these three weeks. But this is a series that we want to give our attention to, not only because of the deep truths that are found in this passage, but also because of the confusion that we find in our world about just what love is. I think the church has been accused of preaching a message of love while practicing something that's very different than that message of love that they preach. And let's be honest, at times that accusation has been correct. We as followers of Jesus at various times and in different ways have lost a vision for the kind of love that is described here in this chapter. The kind of love that we're called to in light of the gospel that we proclaim. And before we dismiss them, we should consider what truth we might find in the accusations that people make about the church being unloving. And yet also, it's true that the definition of love that we are falling short of, according to the world, has often been boiled down to acceptance of and support of all people and choices. So while we may not be loving according to that definition, we could be operating from a deeper understanding of just what love is. And it's that deeper Christ-centered definition of love that chapter 13 seeks to explain. It's the kind of love that Paul calls at the end of chapter 12, a still more excellent way. What a great phrase. But we could respond to that phrase and ask, more excellent than what? Well, more excellent than what was going on in the church in Corinth. You see, we can't fully understand 1 Corinthians 13 and its instructions to us on love unless we understand the chapter's before and after it, and even the entire book of 1 Corinthians. We need to take a trip to Corinth together. And when we get to Corinth, we're going to do our best to discern what this chapter communicates and what, what this chapter was communicating to that original audience, that audience in, in Corinth, and then we can seek to apply it properly to our lives. So I want to invite you to do some context work with me, and we're going to have to do a lot of it just so you're aware. Uh, time will shorten this. It'll permit us to hit the basics of these context questions. And so I just want to summarize in a few different ways. One way to summarize the situation in Corinth would be like this. Corinth was a place of division, worldliness, and competition. 
Sounds great, doesn't it? Division, worldliness, and competition. And I'm not talking about Corinth as a city. I'm talking about the Corinthian church. It was a place of division, worldliness, and competition. Now, that's not all who they were. Paul has some good things to say about the Christians in this particular community. But this letter clearly and bluntly attacks these concerns. The letter that Paul's writing here is, in fact, a response to a letter that he had received from the church at Corinth. And in that letter, they had brought up some of their own concerns. So as you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll find beginning in chapter 7 that Paul starts using phrases like, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So he's addressing the things that they were asking him about. But that happens in chapter 7. The previous six chapters, Paul is actually addressing his own concerns about the church at Corinth. And the first one that he addresses has to do with cliques and factions that existed within the church. In other words, the church was splitting along various lines, forming into separate groups that looked down on one another. In chapter 1, verse 11, he calls it quarreling, as various members of the church attached themselves to specific teachers like, like Peter or Apollos or even himself, to which Paul responds by saying that the basis of, uni- of the unity of all Christians is not some specific teacher, it's Jesus And the church is made up of servants of Christ and Christ alone. As we move through the book, chapters 5 and 6, move on to address the worldliness in the church, specifically related to matters of sexuality and the fact that people in the church were suing each other, bringing lawsuits against each other within the church. Um, Then chapters 7 to 10 pick up with matters related to marriage and idolatry that the Corinthians had asked about. And then we arrive at chapters 11 to 14, which have to do with the gatherings of the church. It has to do with questions about their their public worship services, if you will. And it's in this context that we find a spirit of competition that Paul wants to address, and he addresses it in part with his focus on love in chapter 13. Again, as we're trying to piece together just what was happening within the Corinthian church when they gathered together, we get this picture of confusion and disorder and competition within their public worship service gatherings. Imagine if someone came into our service today and said, you know, if I was going to describe it, I'd say it was kind of confusing, there was a lot of disorder, and it seemed like everybody was competing with one another. It'd be a strange service of worship, but that's how Paul describes the Corinthian worship gatherings. In other words, it was a mess. Here's at least part of what was happening when they got together. There were some people who had this gift that called speaking in tongues. The, the tongues were either foreign languages that they did not naturally know or spiritual languages that no one naturally knew. The problem with this was that the, the tongues were spoken without any interpretation, such that they communicated no clear truth to the people that heard them. So that's going on within the church. And then there's those who would stand up with a word of, of prophecy of some kind. And they would speak in words that could be understood, but then they would be interrupted by someone else who felt led to share something with the congregation. Again, these things could be understood, but there was a constant change in in speakers or people were talking over one another. These and other issues were causing confusion in the church, especially to those who came in from the outside, as we can only imagine. And along with this, there's this spirit of competition as each person was trying to say that their specific gift was greater than someone else's. Again, this is quite the mess, isn't it? 
We could add to this that in chapters 10 to 11, they were having a meal in conjunction with the Lord's Supper that almost always excluded certain members of the church, specifically the poor. And so all of this division and competition and confusion, into the midst of that, Paul says, I want to talk to you about a more excellent way. More excellent than what? More excellent than all of this that was going on in Corinth. Now, as we look at this ancient church and we wonder how we might see ourselves in them, we could find ourselves distracted a little bit by that specific situation. You know, we look around and we could say, well, we're not divided over certain teachers. Uh, Grace Fellowship, when we have potluck, everyone's allowed to eat. We don't exclude certain people. I'm sure the same is true for encounter when you have a meal together. And, And we've come together and we have a nice, clear order of service, don't we? Of course, uh, we could start to say we're doing all right. But if we, if we, instead of looking at the specifics, start to reflect on the presence of division and competition within the people of God, then we're likely going to find parallels to our modern-day church. We'll see that we, too, can lose sight of the fact that our unity is found in our common faith in Jesus. And we will instead think of reasons to to divide or focus on all the ways that we perceive ourselves to be superior to others. If we can come to this passage and be honest about our desire for greatness and our tendency to pridefully exalt ourselves and our ideas above others, then we're going to begin to see how much we too need to hear this message about the more excellent way of love that should be found amongst God's people. Our focus today is just three verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, where Paul talks about the necessity of love, and he makes this clear. Great spiritual gifts without love are worthless. That's our big idea to think about today, your main idea for this passage in one sentence, these three verses. Great spiritual gifts without love are worthless. With that big idea in mind, great spiritual gifts without love are worthless, let's read 1 Corinthians 13. And I want to read the whole chapter, uh, and then we will come back and read verses 1 through 3 again, since those are the ones that we're going to be meditating on. But I think it will be helpful to, to hear the entire um, chapter. 1 Corinthians 13. Hear the word of the Lord. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. 
thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Look back at verse 1 again. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Great spiritual gifts without love are worthless. There's a category of videos on YouTube that I've come across where someone will take a fairly simple food that can be made very cheaply and then find the most expensive way to make it. <laughs> Using the most expensive ingredients that they can, ingredients that they can find. So there's a, an original version that could be dirt cheap while the pricey version could cost hundreds and sometimes even thousands of dollars to make. And the question of the video then becomes whether or not the expensive version exceeds the original simple version. Does the quality of ingredients really change the food significantly? Now, with that concept in mind, I wonder if you could think about a meal that someone dear to you made or makes, some dish that you love. It could be that your grandmother or another family member or friend made it or, or still makes it, but it's a dish that you would never turn down. It, would be a, a, it could be a, a recipe, actually, that, that isn't very flashy. Maybe it's made with Campbell's soup cans and Velveeta cheese, or it's got high-quality meat like hot dogs or hamburger meat. But if I gave you the choice between the expensive version of that food and the one that you have a deep affinity for, I think you'd pick grandma's every time, right? Why? Because it has something that the fancy version doesn't have. It has the secret ingredient, right? Love. Some of you thought I was going to say the secret ingredient is butter, but no. The secret ingredient is love. In chapter 12, Paul spoke about many spiritual gifts. Jake read that for us. Uh, the, the gifts that the Spirit gave to each member of the church so that they could together be built up and, and become mature as a body. He compared the church to a body. And he said that, that just as every part of the body is, is needed for a person to be healthy, so too the church needs every person in the body using their particular gift so that it can grow and, and be healthy. And then he starts to describe some, some really crazy hypothetical situations where various parts of the body feel like they offer nothing of real significance to the other parts of the body, and so they, they, they feel like they, they don't really belong. And there's other parts that think that they are so significant that they can function without the rest of the body. Those who feel inferior announce that they're not part of the body, and those who feel superior feel like they don't need the rest of the body. They think they can exist like, like thing from the Adams family. You remember that hand that used to walk around by itself. It's a crazy picture. We can only imagine what that situation would be like if it played out in our own physical bodies. Your foot stops working because it's jealous of your hand. And the hand takes no thought for the rest of the body. It does whatever it wants. It sounds like some sort of 
slapstick comedy movie starring Jim Carrey, I would imagine. But this is no laughing matter, is it? Specifically in the Corinthian church, it's, it's not funny at all. Some of the members of the congregation felt useless. They felt less than the rest of the others. And others felt like they were the most important part of the church. They were so important that they didn't need anyone else, which then led to everyone in the church wanting to have the gifts that, that made them seem to be most valued by the congregation. Their concern was not about how the specific way that God had gifted them could benefit the building up of the church, but how the more prominent gifts would actually benefit the building up of themselves. We see here, brothers and sisters, that there is actually an easy on-ramp onto the highway of pride when we are using our gifts to serve the body of Christ. Isn't that strange? That there's an easy on-ramp onto the highway of pride when we are using our gifts to serve the body of Christ. We can subtly begin to think of ourselves more highly than we should think and think of our gifts as more important than they really are. We become enamored with what we can do more than being concerned with why we are doing it. And pride, when you think about it, is really an ironic response to a spiritual gift because the source of that gift is not me. It's, it's from the Spirit. And not only that, but also the purpose of the gift is for the building up of the body, not for inflating my ego. So how do we combat this? How do we combat the poison of pride and division and competition? Well, the antidote is love. As Paul seeks to steer us away from these things, he begins by telling us three different ways that great spiritual gifts without love are worthless. First, he says in verse 1 that if we have supernatural words without love, we are irritating. <laughs> if we have supernatural gifts without love, we are irritating. So the gift of tongues is highlighted in verse 1. We first read about the gift of tongues uh, on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. I know, Encounter, you guys have been going through Acts, and so I trust you're familiar with that chapter there the apostles and the other disciples of Jesus supernaturally spoke in various languages as the good news of Jesus began to spread to all nations. Here in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, the tongues actually seem to be something a bit different, but Paul lists them as one of the supernatural spiritual gifts that were given to help with the building up of the church. And yet this particular gift became the one that was prized most by the church in Corinth. Commentator Leon Morris gets at why this might have been. This is what he says. It was universally accepted in antiquity that some people who were in special close touch with the divine had special spiritual endowments. At times they behaved in unpredictable ways, threw themselves about, spoke in a frenzied manner, and so on. Their enthusiasm was the mark of the presence of the divine spirit within them. To many early believers, this kind of thing was preeminently the mark of a spiritual person. And so it, it would seem to make sense, it would make sense that the Corinthians who were filled with this spirit of, of competition, that they would highly prize the kind of gifts that would make them look extra spiritual. Gifts like speaking in tongues. And while the gift of, of, of tongues may, may not be our particular desire, that, that same 
desire is true for us, this desire to have the gifts that make us look extra, super spiritual. We're tempted to desire those gifts that exalt us in some way within the congregation, the ones that make us look extra spiritual. And even if not a specific gift, we want to speak, we want to act in a way that conveys some sort of deep spiritual maturity in our lives. But Paul here pushes against these ideas when he says that great spiritual gifts without love are worthless. And he tells us that we can speak in amazing and even supernatural ways, but if we're doing it outside of love, we are not a blessing. We're actually really irritating. The word for love here is the Greek word agape. It's the word the early Christian community adopted to try to capture what Jesus meant when he called his followers to love one another as he had loved them. It was shorthand for the new commandment that Jesus gave in John 13 about sacrificially laying down our lives for the good of others. It describes the kind of love that could be extended even to our enemies. And Paul says that a supernatural, astounding gift devoid of that kind of love was like someone banging away on a cymbal. I thought about doing it, but I'll spare you. You know, there aren't many people who announce, they say, I'm going to learn how to play an instrument, and I think the instrument I would like to learn how to play is the cymbal. (laughs) Never heard that. And likewise, you don't find many great symphonies that were written specifically to highlight the cymbal. Because while the symbol can, can add something to a song, it's not particularly melodic in and of itself. To that end, I'm sure that many parents, maybe some of you here, have said to their children as they're learning to play the drums, I love you, I want you to learn these drums, but can you please just lay off the cymbals for like 10 minutes because it's driving me crazy. <laughs> this is what supernatural speech without love is. It's a clanging, unmelodious symbol. And what's actually even more shocking is that Paul doesn't say the speaking in tongues is like a gong or a symbol. He says that if he speaks in those ways without love, he himself is the clanging symbol. He himself is the irritation. He says, I have taken a gift that's supposed to be a blessing to others. And by removing love from it, I've used it to turn myself into someone who people, they just want me to leave. My words and my very person, in fact, are more like nails on a chalkboard than a beautiful song. Paul builds on this idea of the necessity of love in verse 2 when he explains if we have great power without love, we are nothing. If we have great power without love, we are nothing. He draws on gifts that have to do with prophecy and knowledge and and faith, and he speaks in hyperbole. He talks about this kind of person who has the greatest possible expression of all of these gifts, a spiritual knowledge of of all things and a faith that, that moves mountains. And he says that if he possesses all of this greatness but exercises it without love, then it signifies that he, in fact, is nothing. I think this could be the category of gifts that our churches prize more than others. What do you think? 
giving the best answer in a Sunday school class or offering some unique insight in a four-year conversation. These are the things that we perceive as truly spiritual. We often prize good teaching and preaching, which is not a bad thing, but it can be dangerous for those who teach and preach. The temptation to use that gift with pride rather than with love is strong. These verses say to me that if I stand here Sunday after Sunday and say wonderful, beautiful, true things and do it without love, I am nothing. Sadly, it's, it's not hard to think of examples of the truth of this statement, is it? We might recall individuals with great intellect, powerful speaking abilities. Some of them were our heroes, weren't they? They were the voices that we turned to when we needed to hear truth, and yet time and history have revealed that they were not marked by love. They were marked by self-interest. They could stand and they could speak great things to great crowds, but in the shadows of their words and their actions were ugly. They were the very definition of unloving. And here in verse 2, the final verdict on them and their gifts is given. They were nothing. And they thought they were something. We thought they were something. But without love, we soon discover that their greatness was just a big charade. And that's the temptation that we can be drawn into. To have great abilities. To have crowds drawn to us. To have people talk about how amazing we are. And without love, we end up as nothing. Finally, we find in verse 3 that if we do great things without love, we gain nothing. If we do great things without love, we gain nothing. Paul moves on to gifts of charity and sacrifice. I mean, what could be more spiritual than giving to the poor? What could be more spiritual than being persecuted for your faith? We might recall some of Jesus' calls to true discipleship that included giving away all that we have or even laying down our lives for others. But here we find that there's actually a way to do those things that is devoid of love. Maybe they're done in the prideful hope of human praise. Maybe sacrifices are made so that we can gain some kind of status and earn God's favor. Maybe guilt overcomes us and we give to others to somehow appease our own consciences. Giving and acts of sacrifice, boy, they look so amazing on the outside every time, don't they? But there's actually nothing gained if we do those things from some motivation other than love for God and love for others. If you take all these verses together, these three verses they make at least one thing very clear. They make a lot of things clear, but at least one thing very clear. It's this. Our acts of spirituality are no clear indication of the truthfulness of our spiritual experience. These outward acts of spirituality that people might look at are in fact no indication of the true sense of our spiritual experience. We can appear rich in gifts in words, in knowledge, in faith, in generosity, in sacrifice, and we may in fact be spiritually bankrupt. 
because these gifts are not the evidence of God's spirit within us. What is? Love. Doesn't that make sense? When you think about the gospel, I think it makes sense. Because what is it that makes us children of God? It's most certainly not what we do. As Ephesians 2 makes clear, it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. It is most certainly not by works, otherwise we could boast. Rather, we are saved how? We are saved by a radical act of love. By love that caused the Father to send his Son to be the Savior of the world. And it's through faith in the death of Jesus on our behalf that we are saved from sin and self. If you're here today and you think that there's something great that you need to do to be at peace with God, some grand act of spirituality that you have to perform, I have such good news for you. Because you don't. Because the greatest act of spiritual devotion has already been done. And what was at the core of that act? Love. Love for prideful, selfish, competitive, egotistical sinners like you and me. (laughs) And our hope of salvation is found in what Jesus has done, not in what we can do. Your hope is that Jesus was perfect and that Jesus died so that he could make you his own. And having been saved by a radical act of love, we are called to walk in that love. That's to be our focus. That is to be our goal, is love. Think about the way we said the church in Corinth measured greatness. It was according to all of these things, according to these outward gifts or shows of spirituality. But but Paul says that Christian love is what identifies a person as truly belonging to Christ, a love And love is actually, it's not a gift of the Spirit, is it? What is love? It's a fruit of the Spirit. Fruit is an evidence of of true life. And love, according to Galatians Galatians 5, is, is the first fruit of the Spirit. The evidence that God's Spirit is truly at work within us is not primarily the presence of spiritual gifts. Let me say that again. The evidence that God's Spirit is truly at work in, it, in us is not primarily the presence of spiritual gifts. It's the presence of love. Now, let me be clear. The, the problem we are addressing here is not the presence of spiritual gifts in general, but it's the absence of love. Paul is most certainly not against spiritual gifts, right? Right? If you read chapters 12 and 14, he's going to make that very clear. There is a place and a need for spiritual gifts within the body of Christ. We need people exercising their gifts to build the body up. But if people are using those gifts from some motivation other than love, they are hurting themselves and they are hurting the church. They are not helping. They are bringing down the body, breaking down the body, not building it up. And that is a strong indictment for Paul to start with here. It's a convicting chapter, isn't it? But how can we move forward? How can we move forward into more love and faithfulness? Let me close with a few questions that could help us maybe apply this passage to our lives. I've got three. Uh, I invite you to think of more because there are many more. My first question would probably be more focused on an individual And the next two would be more focused on a corporate body. But the first is this. Am I more focused on what I do than who I am? 
Am I for, more focused on what I do, specifically within the church, than who I am? We might ask if there are gifts within the church that we are more zealous for, assuming that if we could exercise that particular gift within the church, then, then we would be truly spiritual. And Paul would seem to be telling us that the place to start is not actually with spiritual gifts. The place to start is with the fruit of the Spirit. That the place to begin, if we want to be effective in the body of Christ, is by yielding to God's Spirit in holiness and in surrender so that love grows in us and governs our lives. And then whatever gift we exercise in the church will actually be of value. But we begin with love. The first time I ever used a power washer, I didn't turn it on. I can't tell you how this actually happened, but I, I, I hooked the hose up, I plugged it in, and I sprayed my entire children's wood set with just the, the pressure of the, the hose. You are laughing way too much, Ignacio. Um, <laughs> now, now, there's some force in that, right? Because it was just a little bit more concentrated. But I, I did the whole thing, and then I said, oh, what's this switch do? And I turned it on and heard a noise. And I said, oh, no. I did this whole thing. I realized what I'd been missing. I think there's a sense in which we could be focused on so much on what we think we need to be doing within the church that we forget that we are children of God seeking to build up the body of Christ. And if that's the case, then, then we're going to do things with no power, with zero power. We'll accomplish maybe something, but we'll in the end be nothing. But on the other hand, someone who is yielded to God's spirit, who is seeking to, to walk in love towards God and towards others, will have more power than someone with the greatest gift in the world, the biggest power washer, who lacks love. Am I more focused on what I, am, what I do than who I am? Second, how do we decide who should be promoted in the church? Again, this is an application more geared towards the church. How do we decide who should be promoted in the church. Promoted, I'm thinking of into leadership positions or ministry leadership. When we think about that, is it based purely on the gifts and the abilities of a person? That's a very American way to think about it, isn't it? And we're all Americans. So it makes sense to say, does this person, is this person gifted? Does this person have the ability to do this job? Do we ask those questions, or are we looking for people who actually have a deep love for God and a deep love for others? Now, there are gifts that need to be identified in others. But if we see gifts and we don't see love, we should recognize that, in fact, that person is nothing. And the church will gain nothing if it promotes that kind of an individual. I'm not saying to leave them to the side but not to promote their gift or, or praise their gift before we help them to grow in love. I wonder, I wonder if a disproportionate emphasis on giftedness can cause us to promote people who can do great things, but who don't understand what it means to love others. And in doing that, in focusing on the greatness of the gift over the greatness of love, could we actually be bringing pain and heartache into the church. How do we decide who should be promoted? Is love the first thing that we look for? 
love for God, and love for his people. A final question of application. How do we evaluate our ministries? How do we evaluate our ministries? What is success in the ministries of the church? There's a strong pull towards some idea of greatness. And we see this in the Corinthians and we see it in our own hearts. And the way that we measure greatness often plays right into this temptation that we have towards division and competition. We imagine that our churches are truly great when there are clear signs of supernatural power, when there is a deep knowledge and understanding of spiritual things, when we can talk about radical acts of generosity or sacrifice that are being made. But what if you look around the church and all you have to say about it is, wow, everything that church does is done in love. And there's nothing real flashy. There's nothing really astounding about it. But there's evidence of deep love for God and for one another. Could that be our criteria for success? Could that be what we evaluate things by? When we say things like, we're successful because we're loving others with the love of Christ. Our children's ministry is not the biggest, it's not the most amazing, but you know what it's filled with? Love. Our giving, it's not as much as I would hope it could be, but you know what? Everyone gives out of love. Our sermons, eh, they're not always the best. But the pastor loves us, and he loves God. Our Bible studies, they drive us deeper into love. Our mission trips are carried out with love. Love becomes the measuring stick for our success. Not how great it is, not how flashy it is, not how much the world praises us, not how many people show up to see it happen, but how much love is present. As we close, I think we could go back to 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3, and we could ask, you know, what would it look like if we did all of these things with love? I can tell you what it would look like. It looked like Jesus. <laughs> think about it. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, even Jesus' enemies said they'd never heard anyone speak like him because he was bringing a message from heaven itself. But he did it in love. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to move mountains. Think about it. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he spoke with prophetic insight. He knew all mysteries. He had insight into the heart of every person that he came in contact with. He had faith in God that could not only move mountains but could raise the dead. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned. Jesus lived in poverty. He gave away not simply his physical possessions, but he gave up his very life. Jesus' life was marked by all of these great spiritual gifts. But above them all, what was his life marked by? It was marked by love. His words, his actions, even his death were all an evidence of his love for his father and his love for his people. Romans tells us that God demonstrates his love for us in this. In what? In great acts of spiritual piety? In amazing feats of strength? No. Ultimately, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ 
died for us. We're here together as God's children. Why? Not because of our greatness, but because of an act of great love. And together, as we move into a time of communion, we get to take the bread and the cup and remember that act of love. If you don't have a communion cup, there are some at the back, and I'd encourage you to to get one. But again, we're here to take this, uh, to remember an act of great love. And in doing this, what we're doing is we're confessing that our hope is not in who we are or what we do, but it's in who Christ is and what he has done. And therefore, we get to take this together. It's called communion because we, we do it as a body. It's an announcement that we all together are sinners saved by grace, that there's no one exalted above anyone else. I don't know. I get the same bread. <laughs> I get the same juice as you. It's all the same because we all come to Christ in the exact same way. It's an announcement that we are all sinners saved by the same grace seen in the broken body and in the shed blood of Jesus. If your hope of salvation is in Christ alone and you've come to him in repentance and faith, then I want to invite you to take the bread and the cup with us this morning. And I actually want to just invite you uh, into a moment of silence to reflect and to prepare your heart to take the bread and the cup together. And after that moment of silence, I'll pray and we will take them, um, we'll take the bread first, and then we'll do the juice as well. But let's enter into a moment of silence and allow God to apply his word to our hearts and prepare our hearts to, to take this meal together.